any questions, you can interrupt. You can raise your hand. I mean, I prefer that you not scream, but, um, and uh, we will um, uh, do our best to make sure we answer all of your questions uh, concerning things that um, Paul is writing about. So I'll begin reading in verse 1, though we did cover uh, the first five verses last week, um, but it reads this way. Romans 9, beginning in 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption and the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So we'll stop there. Again, quick review. Uh, Paul basically states that he has such a great love for the Jewish people, which is his people, uh, that he wishes that he could be accursed and cut off from Christ, uh, if that meant their salvation. He then goes through, beginning of verse 4, all of the advantages that they have, all the blessings they have uh, from God. Uh, because basically, we, if you think about it, all of Christianity comes out of the Jewish people. That's, you know, God had appointed them um, to reveal him to the world. They failed on several occasions uh, to the point to where God put them to the side for a temporary period of time. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're outside of God's invitation to salvation because no one is outside of that. So once he goes through all of that in verses 4 and verse 5, he says... And, and so as we begin to dissect what he says, number one, he wants us to know that the failure of Israel to place their faith in God, to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, it's not because the word of God has failed. Right? So that's not the issue. Then he gets into a brief thing where he says, not everyone who's descended from Israel belonged to Israel. But you notice how he states this. All right? So when he says not everyone who's descended from Israel belongs to Israel, he is speaking of those who are, uh, there's a term that some people use today for certain Jews who believe in Christ. We sometimes call them Messianic Jews. Sometimes they call themselves completed Jews. And the reason why they use that phrase is because they believe Jesus is the Messiah. So therefore, uh, they are completely the children of God. All right? Before, the nation of Israel was God's chosen nation. Being God's chosen nation did not make them saved. Right? They were God's chosen nation. They were the tool that God was going to use to reveal himself to the world. The idea was is that those who are born among the chosen people, as they follow God and live in obedience to what he said uh, according to the law, then the natural thing would be for their children who are raised that way would be to exercise faith in the God of Israel, and this would be perpetuated. The problem was, is as a nation, the majority of the people disobeyed and rebelled against God over and over and over again. And so when you read the Old Testament, you know, we're familiar with that kind of pattern where Israel would be blessed by God, things would be going well, then they would, they would rebel by usually following idols, and so then God would send them prophets who would warn them. Uh, they would not heed the warning. Sometimes those warnings would come for, for generations and they wouldn't listen, and then God would send an enemy, and he would use one of the enemies of Israel to, to overtake them, to bring a great deal of pain. Sometimes it would last several decades, sometimes it would last hundreds of years. Uh, then the, the remnant that was there that believed in God and believed that God was going to keep his promises, you know, they would plead to God to be merciful, God would be merciful, he would restore the nation. Uh, and then they would do well, and then the whole process would repeat over and over and over again. So here what he says is 
that just because you're born Jewish doesn't mean that you are a child of God. So we want to make sure that we, we just kind of always make some distinctions uh, when we're talking about uh, theological issues. And what the thing that he's emphasizing is the reason why the individual is not a child of God is because they must be descended from the child of promise. And he indicates uh, the importance of the promise, and that is that everyone who becomes a true believer in Christ is taking advantage of the promises of God. And so that's, it's all, that's always the issue, is the individual placing faith in Christ. So that's why he says in verse 8, this means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. So they may be of Israel, but they're not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And the promise here goes back through Christ, is what he's getting at. That's why in verse 9 he says, For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather, though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So he's getting back into explaining that salvation is by God's grace. Salvation is by God's promise. Salvation is not by works. It is not by anything that we do. God goes against what we consider to be the natural order of things. Uh, when he uses here Isaac and Jacob, um, I mean Esau and Jacob as his example, uh, as we finished last week, normally the firstborn son is the one who carries the family name. He has the authority of the family. He becomes the next patriarch in the family. In this case, God had chosen the second one, not the firstborn. And he makes it clear that it was done before they had done anything. And the reason why he emphasizes that is because the Bible does record the sin of Esau. But he wants us to know in the chronology of events here that that is not what God used to make his determination. God made his determination based on himself. That's, just, that's all that he's talking about. God doesn't make decisions contingent upon us. There are times that God gives us obligations, but God is never bound to do or not to do things based on what we do or do not do unless he binds himself to it. An example... When he gave the law of Moses to Israel, he said, if you obey me, I will do these things. If you disobey me, I will do these things, which is that was the curses uh, that he pronounced against them. So God then, his actions were contingent upon their obedience, but that was because God was the one who laid that ground rule out. When it comes to salvation, that's not the issue. This, you know, salvation, the Bible continually shows us in many different ways that salvation is entirely of God. So that then means we have to remember that even when it comes to you and I exercising faith in Christ, that's not a work. Okay, we're not earning anything. We're just simply taking God at his word and we're trusting in what he says. So it's not, a, it's not something that we are accomplishing. Um, so that's why you don't hear someone say in their testimony, well, I was looking for God and then on my own, I weighed all of the evidence, and I decided that Christianity was true compared to all the rest, and I decided on my own that I would pick God, and then I got saved. That's not normally how it goes. The idea is, is uh, there's all kinds of ways to express it, but in the end, even if we did one day wake up or, or realize that Christianity is true, it's because God is the one who's opened our hearts and eyes to see that. And again, that's explained in various ways throughout the scripture. Isn't that in John? Um, it's one of the places, yeah. It's in, it's in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Yep. But so, I have a question. Yeah. Okay, about Esau. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, I understand this. Oh, I think I, anyway, I just want to try to explain it to someone else. God already planned what was going to happen, so that was his decision. Esau tried to repent. No. He, did, he never tried to repent. No, that's not in the Bible. I didn't read that. We read that again. There's nothing in the Bible. He did not do that. In fact, the Bible says toward the end, his heart had become so hard that it says that he sought repentance with tears but could not find it. But that was because he was refusing. It wasn't because God made it impossible. Okay. His, you know, sin hardens our hearts. Yeah. Um, 
and by the time that he had, in a sense, come around, it was too late to get back his birthright. Again, that's not salvation. That's trying to get his birthright back. We have to make sure we always keep the story clear from the lesson it's teaching. So the details of the story are still the details of the story, and, and a story will help us to understand truth, but we don't want to tie every single detail of the story into some theological truth, because then that can get you in trouble. So it's not true. I mean, I, I have this person I try to explain this to that will say, well, I don't believe in a God that God sends, that God sends people to hell. I said, God doesn't send people to hell. We take our own selves to hell. Right, as well, when we're born, we're already condemned, and it's our sin that's condemned us. The gift of salvation, again, is given to everyone. So. And the other thing is, in my life, and I thought I was saved at seven, and, and I had prayers answered, because I know God's a loving God, and, and, and he even blesses people that, what he did, he went to the cross for people, us for spitting and hating him and, and all, everything. But what I'm trying to say is, I'm probably going to forget what I'm trying to say. So I just have to, this is it. But um, uh, I can't remember what I was going to say. Well, when you remember it, write it down and then ask. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. I do the same thing. I'm sorry. It's all right. Okay. All right. So then he says um, in verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So we want to make sure we explain those terms, because normally when we think of hate, hatred, um, we think of this emotional anger that an individual has towards someone else. You know, someone kills my daughter, and so now I hate them, and I want to see them dead. So that's not an improper definition of the word, it's just not the only one, even more so when it's used in the Bible. So number one, it doesn't mean that God doesn't hate, because God does, he says he does. But when you first trace back the difference between, uh, or look at the word hatred back in the Old Testament, the Hebrew language, the idea there really is to love less. All right. So there's still, so there's still um, the sense of, it's not so much the sense of rejection. So it would be if I said that I, if I was to say in English, I love all children, but I love especially my children, everybody would understand that. If I was saying it in the Hebrew language, back during the time of Moses, I would say, I love my children, I hate other children. Nobody would think that I mean that I want them to be destroyed. Okay, so that, so that's, we don't talk like that. We go, <gasps> you know, what do you mean you hate kids? Yeah, the con yeah so, the, so the main contrast is, is, it wasn't like God was in heaven and he said, I'm choosing Jacob. That's not what's. That's not the emotion that we should be envisioning. Yes. But by we ain't supposed to hate nobody. You gotta die, right? Uh, not necessarily. Okay. Now we don't hate in the sense of gaining vengeance. Vengeance, remember, is something that's sacred, and God is the only one who's allowed to take vengeance. Okay. Uh, but we are to hate unrighteousness, oh, and funny. and we do hate those who do acts of unrighteousness. We just have to make sure we understand what that kind of hatred is. Because yeah. it's not the kind where I want to get a bat and go beat them. That's not, <laughs> you know. Well, that's what we think of, right, though? When we think of hatred, that's what we, that's that. what we think I mean, of. I've always heard. Yeah. And my mama told me when she was mm -hmm. living that you, um, in God's eyes you can't hate. Yeah. It, so there's this idea in the Bible, which is true, that we are to love everyone. And that's true. We even love our enemies. But at the same time, we, we must and we're commanded to hate unrighteousness. We must hate unrighteousness. In Psalms, it goes over and over mm -hmm. that how David hated, hated the wicked. That, that, that hated God. He hated the wicked, yes, absolutely. Enemies, yeah. But he didn't, well, he may have been. Well, yeah, <laughs> sometimes. But what makes, it what makes it get a little complicated with that is even though, yes, it does say that, Ezekiel 18 also adds that God takes no pleasure in the death of a wicked. So we've got this idea that God hates the wicked, but he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Me, on the other hand, I hate the wicked, and I'm throwing a party when they die. <laughs> uh, which, is, which is, but that's not, that would not be proper. Okay, that's not proper. So, it, so, it's, so it's difficult 
You know, it's not this easy, you know, oh yeah, whatever. We, we don't want to be flippant with that. So the idea here that we want to make sure that we recognize, especially as uh, Westerners, where our first language is English, is that we understand that this is not God saying that he has this loathing, simmering hatred towards Esau. That's not what's being expressed. But it is clearly, though, still expressing that God has chosen one over the other. So that's clear, and we want to make sure that we're not minimizing that. All right? God has chosen Jacob to be the one and not Esau. Okay? So we just want to make sure. Because so, we never want to, whenever, we, whenever, there's a, whenever there's difficulty in trying to come to terms with certain things about God, and usually when you're comparing God and man and trying to get understanding, because we're finite in our understanding, we can sometimes, you know, the water can get a little muddy. So the rule that I try to follow is that as I seek to try to understand whatever's going on, I never want to do, do so at the expense of God's glory or God's sovereignty. I never want to diminish that in any way. And, and as long as we're doing that, then we're going to be pretty much on the right track. Um, so if anyone's going to be diminished, it's going to be me or it's going to be the human being. But it's never going to be God. So that would, that, and that does mean, and this is what we have to grasp sometimes, especially as American Christians, because we have a hard time with this. We want all of our theology, all of our understanding about God, we want it to be nice, neat, and tidy to fit in a box where there's nothing hanging out. It doesn't work that way. Because again, God is infinite. Now, we, we want to make sure we stay away from wrong concepts about God, but sometimes things aren't going to be as clear as we would like them to be. And that's just that's because of sin, it's because we're human beings, and so there's a lot of that. We never have to apologize for God. You never have to do that. Right? But there are some things about God that are very difficult to understand. And they're very difficult to uh, be able to even to explain. Yes? That's why Isaiah says, uh, my ways are not to raise my thoughts, but not to your thoughts. Like, Absolutely. I have Absolutely. Yep. And that's good because I, you know, I consider myself on the dumb side of things. And so, all right. So then, verse 14. So Paul then asks a question. What shall we say then? So because God chose Jacob over Esau, and because God did that before they did good or evil, and, he, and because God did that, so that it says up in verse 11, so the order that God's purpose of election might continue because of all those things, is God, is there injustice with God? Okay, that's the question that Paul's bringing up because that would be the natural thought. Well, wait a minute. We, we, a person might think that's not right, which means that God is being unjust or unjust. So, well, now, just on the justice part, just a brief little thing. God is never unjust. He's never evil. At the same time, God, in his treatment of us, is not always just. Because sometimes, many times, he treats us with mercy. But even though he doesn't always treat us with justice, that doesn't mean he's unjust. Right? Because when it comes to our salvation, our, when it comes to our sin, God never looks the other way. Remember, our sins were punished. That's the importance of the substitutionary death of Christ. So it's never this idea, because, you know, the unbelieving world, when they describe what we believe, sometimes, well, maybe it's often, they were misrepresented on purpose to make it sound bad. Sometimes they don't mean to misrepresent it. But they say, oh, you Christians think that you got this inside track because when you sin, God just looks the other way. Okay, that never happens. You can, you can assure them that has never happened. All right? Uh, this idea that we're not punished is tech, that's true because of God's mercy. But that doesn't mean that my sins go unpunished. The sufferings of Christ are very real. And that's very central um, to our uh, theology, to our thinking, to our belief. Uh, that reveals that God is just. In, in every case, God is just. He's never unjust. So we want to make sure we keep that in our mind uh, as Paul then is explaining this, that God is never unjust 
And of course, in this, as he kind of begins to continue to explain, clearly he's not unjust. But just for ourselves, when it comes to our sin, our forgiveness, and all those things, God is never unjust, but he is merciful. Um, so that's why it's, you know, when people say, well, I, I'm just asking God to do what's right. I go, okay, time out. I don't think you mean that. Because what you're saying is you just want God to always do, you want, you want God to only do what's just. That means you get exactly what you deserve. Not about you, but I do not want what I deserve. All right? So I want mercy. And they should want mercy too. Now, usually when people say that, they don't know what they're saying. But it's a good opportunity to explain it. All right? We don't want to be condescending to them, but we want them to understand, well, what you're asking for then is you're asking God to make sure that only justice is done. And some people go, yeah, that's right. So what that means in everything. God's not only going to be, make sure justice only happens here, it's going to be everywhere, which includes you. <laughs> We're all under the curse of sin. We're in, you're in trouble. So we just want to, you know, there's all these things that we want to make sure we keep. So the gospel is very comprehensive. It's not limited in any way. Yet at the same time, it's still pretty simple. You know, it's not, it's not so complicated that you have to have an IQ of, you know, 100-something to be able to grasp it. All right? It is still very simple uh, and yet profound. So again, the question, is there injustice with God? And of course, Paul says, by no means. But then he goes back to some hard things with God. For, Mo, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So God speaks to Moses as the all-knowing, all-powerful judge. So in our court system in our country, the judge normally has a lot of leeway. Uh, it's a little less now than it used to be, but, but he has leeway in sentencing. And he doesn't really have to explain why. It's, it's becoming more and more difficult with that because the way the court system works, it's just all messed up. But anyway, so it used to be. Um, so we kind of think, we expect this from a judge. So let's say that you are, let's say you were shoplifting, you stole $1,000 worth of stuff that makes it a felony. You come before the judge, and the judge says, well, because this is your first offense, uh, you're, you're only going to be on parole. So that's actually mercy. Because according to the law, you can go to prison for X number of years. It's five hundred dollars so here. <laughs> yeah, I know. So he's showing mercy, and he has he has within his authority he has the right to do that. And technically, he doesn't even have to explain it. He can just choose to do it. All right. So, but if you, at the same time, if he decides, no, I'm going to give him the maximum, then he has he has that much leeway. He decides, he may ask the, the, uh, the lawyers for things. He may ask them for information to help him make up his mind. But he decides. So all that God is it's describing here is that his prerogative, except this is different. This is not a man appointed by other men. Uh, this, is, this is not a one who's working within a system. This is the one who created the system. This is God. So God then has the absolute right to show mercy. And that's what we have to recognize. God owes no one mercy. All right? So God doesn't owe it to us. That's why we plead. When you read through the Psalms, remember that David is considered in the Bible to be a man after God's own heart. He never comes to God and says, you owe me mercy. He, does, he, never, he pleads for mercy. He asks for mercy. Sometimes he begs for mercy. He never demands it. So, again, mercy is, if God shows mercy... You're asking him to withhold what you deserve. That's what you're doing. You, I deserve whatever. I'm asking God to not give that to me. So anything less than what I deserve is mercy. And so there's varying degrees of mercy. On the other hand, grace, remember, is when God does good, and of course we've not earned it. So oftentimes, mercy and grace are, worked, are together because the act that we've received includes both. All right, so I've been pardoned for my sin because you know, I, I believe what, what Jesus has done. So I have received both God's mercy and grace in my salvation. God has done for me what I could never earn and what I haven't earned. And God has withheld punishment to me because that punishment was placed on Christ. And so I received the mercy of God. 
So all he's saying here is that um, God is this perfect, omnipresent, which means he's ever at once, omniscient, he knows everything, omnipotent, means he's all-powerful, judge, and he alone decides what he's going to do. That's what he's establishing. Now, that's also important because for this reason. When Paul was writing all these things, most of the individuals during the time of Paul, when it came to religion, number one, there are several things that are, that are in contrast here. Number one, no other religion ever talked about back then of having a, an individual, a personal relationship with God. No one had, you know, they had gods for all kinds of things. Most of the time they were worshiping idols is what they were worshiping. So their view of gods were superstitious. They believed their gods were weak. They believed that some gods were more powerful than other gods, or at certain times, certain gods were powerful. They believed certain gods could be tricked. Um, that's why they would hire wizards who, who supposedly were the religious experts. And if I'm going to go fight, you know, the, the, the Persians, and, and they've got a big navy, you know, well, I want the god of the ocean to be on my side. That's the god they worship. So I hire a wizard. What's, what, what can I offer their god that he, will, he won't bless them? He'll bless me. You know, that kind of thing. So they have this very weird view. Their, their gods never speak really of wrongdoing. They can get angry. They can be bribed. Um, and they can be, so they can be bribed and tricked into making decisions. That's not what the, Paul's describing the one true God. That's not who he is. So the contrast for them is much greater than really what pops into our mind. Because all of us have been raised where there's other religions that believe that there's only one God Many religions have some kind of a definition about God as being very, at least very powerful, um, and that kind of thing. And so we're, and of course there's the Christian idea in general uh, that many people have in their mind of God. So we're accustomed to that. So that's, that's not a shocking thing to us. But the people that are reading what Paul's writing, they've, they've not heard this kind of thing before. So that, that's why Christianity is such this radically different religion back then. Now, that's also why they believed Judaism was so radically different. All right? Because in Judaism, God had given the law to Moses. The law covered not only how they were to worship, but it covered, their, it covered bathing, eating, I mean, all kind of stuff. And so when it came to that, um, the other religions didn't do that. So that's why you always have a lot of Gentiles visiting the synagogue at times to hear the lectures that the Pharisee or the Sadducees might be giving because they had just never encountered this before. And then a guy that you can pray to for all kinds of things, not just to Christian enemies, not just to break the drought. You know, you're asking God to bless your food You ask every day. I mean, that was just unheard of. So there's this huge contrast going on in the minds of these individuals that are reading what Paul is writing. Um, and so he makes this very, it's, it's true, it's a bold statement, but it's a true statement uh, about who God is. And so he's now going to explain what he means. He wants, to, he wants us to understand the strength of what he's just said in verse 15. So verse 16 says, so, or so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So all these things he's talking about then, none of it is dependent upon the human being. It's not, it's, not a, it's not based on our performance. It's not based upon whether or not God likes us. It's not based on any of that. God just decides. So, it's com so what he's talking about is completely out of our hands in that sense. Verse 17, now he's going to give an illustration or an example of this. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So we have to, so if you're not familiar with the story of Pharaoh and Moses, uh, we have to go through a little bit of that so we can really grasp what he's saying. So the Bible says when you read in the Old Testament that uh, Israel, they had moved to Egypt because of a great famine. They remained there because things were good. Joseph was second in command. They got through the drought. Life was good. This Pharaoh, he liked Joseph because he considered Joseph to be the guy that saved his nation through all these bad times. So they were given all, they were given all this land to live in. And then the next Pharaoh came up. Well, he knew who Joseph was. He wasn't bothered by the Hebrew people. They, they were allowed to live there. 
Uh, and so the, the Hebrew people were prospering. But then, and then, and then of course as the economies grow and change, the Egyptian economy became kind of dependent upon both the Egyptians and the Hebrew people and what they did. You know, everything's kind of intermingled. And then the Bible points out one day a pharaoh arises who doesn't know Joseph. Baining, and what that means is, not that he didn't know the history, it just didn't matter though. It didn't matter to him who, who this Joseph was who lived a long time ago. And his advisors basically said, you know, Pharaoh, one day we've got enemies coming. And these Hebrew people, there's so many of them, if they get persuaded to join our enemies, we're done for. And Pharaoh, oh, I considered that. And so they began to change laws and they began to treat them differently to where basically they ended up becoming slaves in Egypt. And, and Pharaoh treated them pretty harshly. You know, remember, this, that's the story, that's the story, the reason why the story of Moses is so famous is not just because of who Moses ended up becoming, it was because uh, it was after an edict was given out by this Pharaoh saying, I want the male children to be killed. We got, we've got we've to we've slow down this population explosion among the Hebrews especially with young men, because that's who joins the armies and fights. And so we need to start, and so, you know, the mother wanted to save Moses and all that. So then, uh, the people had, had already been enslaved by then, and there was still much trouble. By the time Moses comes along, Moses is raised in, in the household of, of Pharaoh. Uh, they're not really, I think it was kind of lost that he was originally a Hebrew person, but he ends up killing an Egyptian and runs away, and then God transforms his life, and he comes back, because as the period of slavery got worse and worse for, is for, for the Jews, uh, they were crying out to God for deliverance, and that's when God brought Moses in to deliver them from the hand of Egypt. So, this Pharaoh, who uh, has no consideration for, for Joseph, we know that um, when God tells Moses to go and talk to Pharaoh to let the people go, he tells Moses that Pharaoh's not going to do it. He tells him in advance that he's not going to do it. He says, but you're going, you're going anyway. I'm paraphrasing. He says, you're going to go anyway because this is going to be an opportunity for me to demonstrate who I am. And the idea is, is, that, is that's for the benefit of mankind. He's going to reveal to mankind that all these different gods you believe in, they're not really gods. But the God of Israel, he is the one true God. And so that's, we're familiar with the story of the 10 plagues. And in the beginning, you know, when uh, Moses turns the water into blood, um, well, first there's the serpent deal. You know, he throws his cane down, turns to a serpent. So then uh, Pharaoh has his magicians. They can do the same thing. They throw their sticks down, they become snakes. The thing that kind of freaks them out is then, the Moses snake eats their snakes. <laughs> and after he does that, Moses picks up his, his, the snake and it becomes, becomes a rod again. So they're a little taken back by that. Turns the water into blood. He has his magicians do the same thing. So he doesn't make it worse. And that kind of goes on for a while with the different plagues. And then eventually, um, you know, Moses is doing things these guys can't do. And if you do a detailed study of the ten plagues, every plague is against one of the major deities that they worship. Like when he turns the, the water into blood, well, they worship the god of the Nile. Well, the god of the Nile just, just didn't help him out a whole lot because mm -hmm. it turned to blood, all the fish died. You got a problem. Um, and so when you, go, when you do that study, all those major gods could not turn back what God had done. And again, so that, and, and that story we know was famous. That, you know, God did reveal that because what took place was many, many years later, I mean decades later, um, Israel when they find they've escaped Egypt, they send some spies into the land of Canaan. And there's this prostitute that, that hides them because people find out, you know, oh, these, these guys are here. We need to find them. And the reason why they're looking for them is because they all know what happened in Egypt 40-some years ago. They go, yeah, we, we, we know what your God did. In fact, we know your God's going to give you this land. And so the prostitute, Rahab, she's like, Basically, I believe in your God. That's <laughs> what so she does. So she hides them. And she says, when you come, remember me. <laughs> you know? And of course they do. They save her and her whole family. All right? So the idea was, is, so there was, you know, there's no newspapers going around. 
but the news had spread and 40 years later it has such an impact on the city of Jericho is they are flipping out when they see the Jews coming over. And of course, what we sometimes forget is they had an opportunity to repent and turn from their gods and worship the God of Israel. They didn't do it. They refused. And that means they, their hatred for Israel was a hatred for God. It's the same thing. In fact, that was common uh, during that time of history that whenever there was a conflict with people, that you were also in conflict with their gods. The only difference is, is that the God of Israel had proven who he was. It wasn't just legends that had crept out. It was people who didn't even believe who were saying, yeah, that really did happen. This took place. This God really did deliver them. This is, this is the one true God. And we have evidence of that throughout some of the stories of Israel, where there's other great men who testify to the reality of who God is. They all, they all don't get converted, but they all will re- relate to who he is. So, so anyway, so we go back to what God says to Moses back in the beginning. God tells Moses that, so Pharaoh, Pharaoh's not going to let him go, and I'm going to use this. So what Paul is telling us here is that God said that the reason why Pharaoh was born and was raised to this position to be the king of Egypt, as a Pharaoh is, was for this reason. So he's saying God did all that. Now what is interesting, by the way, is when you read the Old Testament, it talks about God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. And when you read in the Old Testament, there are, in that story, five times it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It also says five times Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So it says both, five each. The idea there is, God's in charge, God's doing what he's doing, but God isn't forcing anyone to do anything. Pharaoh was a fully willing participant in all of that. So there's nothing in there about us becoming robotic. Because sometimes what what man rebels against, what we don't like, and I've heard, I've I've had discussions with tons of people about this. So sometimes they'll phrase it this way, well... If God knows everything that's going to happen, then we don't really have a choice. And I go, how does knowledge bind you? Well, because God knows what's going to happen. I said, so I said, uh, so I said, um, so here's the, uh, here's the scenario. Obviously, it's going to break down because I'm not God. I said, so I, I know what some of my grandchildren want for Christmas. And I buy it for them. They don't know this. I buy it for them. I know in advance that when they get this gift, they're going to be really happy. I know that they're going to probably squeal and they're going to be very excited. I said, so I know that. So since I know that, it, and I know it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Does that mean that their joy is now ruined. No. What kid has ever said, well, I mean, I know you knew I'd be happy if you bought me a bike. So I'm, you know, I guess I'm happy. I have to be. No, kids don't do that, right? So the eye, just, just because God knows what's going to happen, we somehow think, or have come to this conclusion, that, that means, well, then I really don't have a choice. But that doesn't make any sense. God, or God knows what choice you're going to make. But the idea, though, is that God is not trying to figure out what you're going to do in time. He already knows it. Because God is God. He's not like these pagan deities that can be bribed and and are weak and fickle and all the rest. If God is going to be God, then he is truly in every way this majestic, supreme being. And there will be things about him that are hard to understand, and there may be things about him we don't like. That doesn't mean he's wrong, because he's not. But there's some things that can make us really uncomfortable. But what God also does through all of this, he goes out of his way to make sure we understand that he can be trusted, that he does not do evil, that he is good and benevolent, and he's proven that over and over. Why would you rebel against that? He's not like us. He's not like some dictator who starts out good and ends up being very evil. He's consistently good. Even when he gives us commands, he's not giving us commands to enrich himself. 
He doesn't need to be enriched. He already owns everything. He's not giving commands so he can be the big boss. He actually already is. There's nothing that he everything he tells us is really for our benefit. We're the ones that are blessed by it. So it just reveals the darkness of our hearts. We, in the end, don't like God being God. We don't want there to be any being that tells us what to do or what is right or what is wrong. That's what we don't like. And that's where our trouble is. So there's this, so basically what we have here is, is for lack of a better way to put it, is a very high view of God. God is very much different than us. God is very powerful, but again, he's holy and good and just and loving and kind, as well as being a, a God of, of wrath because he ha, he's the one who's created this moral standard and we're the ones that rebelled. So Paul is making that clear in here, and so that's why he brings out this, this, this uh, um, analogy here, or this illustration, where he talks about Pharaoh, and God basically says, yeah, I raised him up for this, um, which is kind of a, which can send a shiver up your spine, um, to say the least. So again, verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, in other words, so because of that, he, speaking of God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So when it comes to that, the first thing that some people think of, maybe many, is that by itself makes God unfair. Because if he hardens certain people, where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us in a sense in the scary position that we are all at the mercy of God. I, I guess we are. But God's never sinful. God's never evil. God is always good. God is always kind. God's always loving. How many of us have met an individual who says, well, because God has hardened my heart, I hate him? No, nobody says that. People will tell you they hate God. Their hearts are hardened towards God. People try to find ways to blame God, but, but you don't find anybody who says, well, I want to love God, but I can't because God hardened my heart. You know, it's not my fault. That there's no one who says that. No one thinks that. No one believes that. Um, so we have this hard truth about who God is, uh, but again, it's a God who shows mercy. So then verse 19. So Paul now is going to get in right into the thick of it because these are the questions now that people are going to have with all this information, they, they don't, they're not, he knows they're not going to like this. And so he says, so you will say to me then, in verse 19, why does he still find fault? It's a great question. If God hardens our heart, then why does God hold us responsible for what we do, what we do wrong? For who can resist his will? Which is just kind of a follow-up. He's, he's saying... Why does God hold us responsible? Because nobody can resist God. So, verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? So that's also the answer we don't want to hear. We want the explanation, as if somehow God owes us this explanation. God doesn't owe us an explanation. He doesn't give it. And I think that part of that is because we would be unable to grasp it. The idea is, is that this question is asked in rebellion. And that's the heart of it. It's, it's asked in rebellion. So, if you go back again into the Gospels, there's a story of Zacharias and his wife. They're old. They want to have a child. Uh, Zacharias, it's his turn to go into the Holy of Holies that year. You know, only one priest would go into the Holy of Holies one day a year uh, to make atonement for the nation of Israel. It fell on him. So he went into the Holy of Holies, and uh, an angel appears and tells him that his wife's going to have a son. And so when, he, when he's told that, he asks, how's this going to happen? And what we can infer from that is when you, when you kind of look at the story and what happens and what transpires in the conversation, that he's asking that because he doesn't believe it can happen. He's, so he's asking in unbelief. Oh, it's it's, it's kind of like rebellion. Like, what, what are you talking about? He doesn't believe it. 
And so, God, so the angel says, okay, well, here's the sign. Boom. You won't be able to talk. And he's silenced. Didn't he laugh? Uh, Sarah laughed. Sarah laughed when the angel said she was going to have a baby. He didn't laugh. So then, later on, this angel appears to Mary. Mary's this young woman. She's not married. And God, the angel says to her, says, uh, you're going to have a baby. And she says, how's that going to happen? I'm not married. And the angel patiently explains to her, how God's going to do it. So we have two people who both ask what looks like they're similar questions, but they're different. She's willing to go along with whatever God wants. She's, she's in. She just, wants, she just needs the details. You know, basically, should I get married? What should I do? How's this going to happen? Oh, here's the details. And she's, she's in. So one is asked in belief. One's asked in unbelief. That's basically it. And so now later on, when... Well, the guy we know is John the Baptist was born. Elizabeth gives him his name because John can't speak. And when she says his name is John, people are like, yeah, there's nobody in your family named John. Give her husband the tablet. That's what does he say? And of course, he wrote, well, his name is John. <laughs> yeah, he learned his lesson. Yeah, the angel said his name was going to be John. He's John. And, uh, and then, boom, he could speak. And of course, everybody's like amazed because now he, he can speak fully. So... You know, it, it, it was a discipline of the Lord when all that took place. So the idea is that when, you go, when we go through the Bible, when the Bible makes certain assertions, or if it's implying something about us, if, if I make an assertion about you, or if I speculate about you, um, uh, if I make assumptions about you, I clearly can be wrong, because I don't know everything. But when we, if we use the same terminology with God, when, when the Bible makes an assertion about us or an assumption about us, it's always correct. God has all knowledge. There's no guesswork involved. So here, what he says, when Paul then raises this question, who are you? Basically, to question God, that's what he's getting at. It comes from a heart of evil. It comes from a heart of disbelief. You're questioning God. You're questioning his ways as if you're almost, it's like you're accusing God of evil. And you should not be doing that. And so that's kind of the idea with, um, with the way that he uh, says that. Because he says, who are you to answer back to God? Then he gets into illustrating, really, I guess you would say, our place uh, before God. He says, well, what is molded? Say to us, molder, why have you made me this way? In other words, if you make pottery and you decide to make a vase... The vase doesn't say, why'd you, why'd you make me a vase? Of course, I guess the vase wouldn't complain, but if you took the pot, pottery and you made a bedpan, and the bedpan said, uh, I don't like this. I don't need a bedpan. I don't be a vase. And of course, the, all, the only thing he's saying, and he's doing this on purpose, is that no, what you make doesn't, uh, doesn't answer back. It just does what it's made for, right? That's the idea, all right? So, verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And, of course, the answer is, of course he does. The potter has every right to make what he wants. It's up to him. He does that. So then when it comes to us, human beings, and God, God has the right to do whatever he wants, period. Now, there was two separate occasions. Uh, both times I was going through Romans, this is when I was teaching in the jail all the time. And they had guys come up to me, and they would say, well, my, my life's been a mess. I've always hated God. Um, I, and they go through this long, you know, detailed, lurid story of their life. And, the one, and they both ended up saying to, to, in essence, they were afraid that they were like this. So how do I know that God hasn't made me just to be like Pharaoh He's going to use me and throw me away. And I said, simple. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. Ask God to cleanse your heart. Believe in him. Because it says clearly that if you do that, you'll be saved. Because I can't, I don't know the future. And thank goodness in both those cases. It didn't happen like the next day. But within the next several months, both of those individuals 
ended up becoming believers. Right? So everything in life pointed to them being just this. And when they were confronted with the truth that God can do whatever he wanted with them, it struck them to the core, and they were terrified. Uh, and, of course, they were very much aware of their own sin in their life. And I did what the Bible says. I gave them the gospel. And no one's ever, no one is ever, um, uh, no one can ever say, well, I want to get saved, but God won't let me. See, that, that doesn't happen. Can't happen. Yes, sir. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So we'll stop there uh, because uh, Paul does ask more detailed questions um, and gets into more of the nitty gritty. But does anyone have any questions uh, still on anything that we've covered tonight? Anything you want? Yep. No, go ahead. Oh, um, when you were talking about Esau and Jacob, and, um, and you were talking about the hate. Anyway, God hates the wicked, but is not pleased when, and then I didn't get when they die. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's Ezekiel right. 18. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Had to be. He's a priest, so. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we're thankful. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to teach us about yourself and really that you are to be feared. You are completely different than us. You are so far above us, Father, we'd never be able to comprehend even a little bit about you. And yet it pleases you, Lord, to reveal a little bit of yourself to us. And what you do reveal, Father, is overwhelming. Especially, Father, when we consider that you've proven yourself to be loving and kind and gracious and really, in a sense, condescending towards us because of your pity towards us and your willingness to save us from our unrighteousness. Father, that's truly an amazing thing, and we're grateful. So, Father, we ask that as we think about who you are and as we think about your vastness and that you really are everywhere, that you really are a God who knows everything, that you really are a God who is all-powerful, that, Father, it, it makes no sense for us to be in any other position but then just to come to you and submit to what you've said and what you've done and accept the gift you've given to us. As it says, Father, in the book of Hebrews, that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, Father, we ask that you would help us as we think on these things and help us, Father, to see the beauty of your glory. Keep us safe as we go home. Watch over us. Draw us closer to yourself each day, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.